turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. I'm going to read verse 13 through 20. Jason preached verses 13 through 16 last weekend, but I'm going to take this as a unit, so I'll be in 17 through 20, but I want to read the whole thing together. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God declared to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray. Father, we ask as we consider your word, your spirit, who inspired this word, would be at work in our own hearts and minds, applying it, helping us to understand it and to live in light of it. Pray we would honor you with our listening, that your spirit would be at work to give us ears to hear what he is saying to the churches, that your son might be exalted in our lives, that we would trust in him and find him as the ultimate ground of our assurance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we come to the close, really, of a series of sermons that have brought us through a section of Hebrews that is exhortation. I've told you guys this before, as we walk through the book of Hebrews, we have sections there that are what you might call explanation of doctrine or a kind of exposition of doctrine. So we have sections of Hebrews that give us exposition of a doctrine. And then after it exposits a doctrine and teaches us a doctrine, it then exhorts us. The author of Hebrews will then turn to an exhortation. Here's what you do with this. So in Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, and really starting in Hebrews 4, 13, 14, 15, right in there, but in Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, he lays out that Christ is this great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then after he says that for 10 verses, he comes in and says, I know this doctrine is difficult to understand, but it's actually not difficult to understand because it's so heady. It's difficult to understand because you're so lazy when it comes to listening, which isn't particularly complimentary. And then he goes on and exhorts us to pursue maturity. And as he exhorts us to pursue maturity, he warns us of apostasy. Listen, if you stop listening to the word of God, be warned you might be one of those people who becomes apostate and is damned. Not that you lost your salvation, but that in ceasing to persevere, you found out you never had it in the first place at all. So keep persevering. And then he comes on and says, hey, I know I've just rattled your cage talking about this being damned if you don't listen committing apostasy, but I want you to understand I'm very confident about you that you're saved. And the reason is I see this fruit and evidence of your salvation in your life, the way you love the Lord and love others, the way you're continuing in the faith patiently. And then he says, let me give you an example of someone who continued in the faith patiently, Abraham. And he talks about Abraham's patient perseverance in the faith. Now, if you know anything about Abraham's patient perseverance in the faith, it wasn't Abraham's perfect perseverance in the faith. Abraham is quite disobedient on a number of occasions, struggles to believe on a number of occasions. Remember, God makes a promise to him. 
He heads off to Egypt. What's the first thing he does? Sarah, you're good looking. Pharaoh's going to want you to tell her you're my sister. Disobedience kicks in pretty quick. Lack of belief kicks in pretty quick. But Abraham, in spite of his failure, perseveres in the faith. And he's held up as an example. And we're hearing through this entire passage of exhortation, we're hearing this message that you should not cease pursuing God's means of grace. The means of grace, the way in which God works grace in your life, being under the preaching of the word, being in the word with other believers, stirring one another up, other believers up to love and good deeds, being good members of the body, continuing in prayer. Don't cease doing that stuff because if you cease doing that stuff through which God grows you up and matures you, if you cease, you may spiritually drift off to sea. You may spiritually drift off. And as we start to think about this, we start to worry about things like, how do I know I'm not going to drift off to sea? What's my assurance? And he says, well, you have some assurance in the fruit of God's grace in your life that you see. There's some assurance in that. Look at the way you love the brothers. Look at the way you love one another. There's some assurance in that. That's great, but that isn't the ultimate assurance. So as we end this section on Hebrews, this particular section, I want us to see that the author actually ends this section, this exhortation, by stressing that Christ alone is our assurance. I'm not saying that you should cease, nor is the author of Hebrews saying you should cease striving to enter that rest. Or you should cease making your calling and election sure. Or you should cease working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or that you should cease growing in maturity. Or cease persevering in the faith. Please continue all that. But even as you continue all that, what I am saying and what the author of Hebrews is saying is that after you've done all you can to persevere in the faith, you must remember that the true ground, the true basis of your assurance is found in Christ alone. Please do all that you can to persevere in the faith. Be obedient. Strive to enter the rest of heaven. But please do not fail to remember that the foundation of your assurance is God's grace alone, given to you through faith alone, in Christ alone. To emphasize that God's grace in Christ, received through faith, is the true foundation of our assurance, I want to focus on Hebrews 6, 17 through 20, and focus upon what is being said about God's promise to Abraham. And as we do, I want to look at three truths regarding this promise that God gave to Abraham and his offspring. I want to look at the nature of God's promise, Second, the confirmation of God's promise. And third, I want to look at the objects of God's promise, or the recipients, if you will, of God's promise. So let's look first at the nature of God's promise. Look at verse 17. He's just said that God made a promise to Abraham, and he confirmed that promise with an oath. And he said, like, when we make oaths, we swear by something greater than ourselves. Like, you put your hand on the Bible, and you swear, so help me God. Something greater than yourself. And he's saying, when we do that, God is doing something like that and giving an oath, except there's nothing greater to swear by than himself. When God swears by something greater than himself, do you notice something problematic about my statement? He can't swear by something greater than himself. He is the greatest of all things, if you will. I hate to call God a thing, but you get the point I'm trying to make. Beings. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope 
set before us. Now, I want you to recognize that there are really five aspects of the nature of God's promise that are mentioned here. Now, at least five aspects. If I went inferentially, I'd get to more than five, but just five aspects. First aspect of the nature of God's promise that's told to us here. God's promise is gracious. Whenever we speak about love and grace, folks are often uncertain. How do I distinguish love from grace? So let me tell you that God's grace is just God's love set upon those who do not deserve it, who have not merited it. God's grace is God showing kindness toward and seeking the good of those who have not earned it. God willed to show us kindness, though we deserve judgment. God's mercy is his grace toward those who are miserable. That would be all of us. Note that God purposed to give us grace. God purposed to give us grace. Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, look at verse 14, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now notice, Abraham, just like the rest of us, was fallen in Adam. He was under the curse. God had cursed all men in Adam. And yet God chose to bless Abraham. I will bless you and multiply you. He was setting his love on Abraham in such a way that we call it gracious. He was going to be kind to one who deserved punishment. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. See, this is his purpose. He purposed to bless Abraham and his offspring. He purposed to do that. He decreed it. He decided that it would be so. He purposed, he decreed, he decided to be gracious to those under the curse, justly under the curse. Please pay attention to that. God purposed to give us grace. It is God's will to give us grace. God is the spring or the fountain of all grace that overflows to us. Now, the reason I stress that is because what often comes next is the question, but what caused God to be gracious to us? Like, why? God had cursed us for our sin, so why now does God choose to be gracious to us? What caused that in him? Well, that leads to the second truth I want to teach about the nature of God's promise or purpose here. The nature of God's promise is God's promise is eternal. Not only is it gracious, God's promise is eternal. Now, how does that answer the question, what caused God to be gracious to us? I want you to hear why in just a second. You say, you just asked the question, what caused God to be gracious to us? And you gave the answer, God's promise to be gracious to us is eternal. That seems like a non sequitur. Do you know what I mean by non sequitur? It means it does not follow. You, had, you asked a question, what caused God to be gracious to us, though we were under the curse of sin? And you gave an answer, God's grace to us, his promise to be gracious to us is eternal. Those two things don't seem to fit, but let me explain why. God's purpose in eternity issued in his promise in history. When Abraham heard the promise from God, that was God declaring in history a purpose that he set forth in eternity. In other words, the way I'm answering the question is this. There is nothing that caused God to move in some way because there is nothing before him, nor is there anything that is not from him. All things are from him. Whatever God does, whatever God does toward us reflects who he is. And whatever God is, he is in himself eternally. God does not become something. God is. Thus he's not moved to be gracious to us. There wasn't something that Abraham did that moved God to be gracious to him. 
God just set his love upon Abraham and chose to be gracious to him. God set his love upon all of Abraham's offspring and chose to be gracious to them. Why? Because that's who God is. He's gracious. He set his purpose down eternally and made that purpose known through giving a promise in history, which leads to the third aspect of God's promise. God's promise is not only gracious and eternal, but wise. God's promise is wise. God's promise that was made known to Abraham is his eternal purpose. And his promise is after the counsel of his own will. He willed it after his own counsel or wisdom. What I mean is this. God doesn't sit and deliberate. Hmm, Adam sinned. What now? Let me think to myself. What's good? Would this be good? Would that be good? Would this be good? As if he's deliberating. There's a whole theory out there, this doctrine of middle knowledge, which essentially has God deliberating eternity past. There's all these possible worlds God could create. He's looking at all the possible worlds, and he says, which one is the best of all the possible worlds? He's deliberating to himself, and then he creates the best of all possible worlds. That is so problematic on a number of levels. Pastorally, it's tough when you're in the hospital, and someone's dying of cancer, and you look at him and go, well, this was the best God could do. Pastorally, it's difficult there. But it's just difficult when you get to the doctrine of who God is. God isn't in eternity past deliberating, trying to figure out what he'll do, uncertain, taking risks. He's not any of that. God understands and comprehends all things in one single act of his divine mind. He knows all things as he wisely decrees all things. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Keep your hand in Hebrews 6. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Well, notice this eternal, wise, and gracious emphasis in God's purpose and promise. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When? When did he bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Well, both in time and eternity. He purposed it in eternity, and he carried it out in our lives as far as application in history. Look what it says. Even, verse 4, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. According to what? According to the purpose of his will or according to the counsel of his own will. He didn't deliberate. He didn't ask for advice. He didn't create creatures and then say, what do you think I should do? Is this a good idea? According to the purpose of his will, now notice verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. See, his purpose in saving us, which comes out historically in his promise to Abraham, that purpose that Abraham receives historically in a promise, that purpose is eternal, wise, and gracious. It's eternally decreed. It's according to the counsel of his own will, and it's to the praise of his glorious grace. And God's gracious, wise, and eternal purpose, I want you to hear this, because this is one you have to grab hold of. His gracious, wise, and eternal purpose is not subject to change. That leads to the fourth aspect of the nature of God's promise. Turn back to Hebrews 6. God's promise is immutable. So God's promise is gracious. God's promise is eternal. God's promise is is wise after the counsel of his own will, and God's promise is immutable, unchanging. That word immutable is a negation. M is a negation of mutable. Mutable means to change. M, not changeable. It doesn't change. Look at Hebrews 6 and verse 17. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. What's the nature of his purpose and his promise? Unchangeable. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things. You catch that? Two unchangeable things. What are they? God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and God's oath to Abraham in Genesis 22. God makes a promise to Abraham, and then later when he takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, obviously God provides the lamb in the thicket, and he sacrifices that. But when that happens, God then makes an oath to Abraham. And he says, both my promise and my oath are unchangeable. They're immutable. Because his purpose is eternally wise, it does not change. Indeed, it cannot. For God's purpose to change would mean that God is either not eternal or it's not wise. It means that either God changed in his character or that somehow God missed the truth or made an error. God cannot change in who he is because he is. That's something you have to stop and think about for a minute. God cannot change in who he is because he is. He is not becoming. He is. Listen, I grow and change. I am becoming. I once was not. I came into being. I grew. I learned. I matured. And thus, I change my mind, don't I? Listen, if you're not changing your mind, you're not maturing. That's bad. Your mind is changing all the time as you mature, as you grow and you learn and you understand and you mature, you change. So that what you said in the past is no longer good and it ought not to be good because you realize what you said in the past was wrong. God never commits error. He doesn't change, he doesn't grow, he doesn't learn, he doesn't mature. I once was not a husband. I once was not a father. I once was not a pastor. I became what I once was not. But God is not a creature. There is no shadow of turning or change in him. He is what he is for eternity. Thus, when God has asked for his name, it's almost like you hear the answer he gives to Moses when Moses says to God in the burning bush at that theophany, who do I tell the people you are? It's almost like God's answer is, none of your business. Tell them it's none of your business what my name is. He just says, I am what I am. That's his answer. What's your name? I am. What a strange answer if you don't stop and think about what he's saying. Not I was, I will be, I am. I didn't start to exist at some point. I didn't come into being. I don't go out of existence at some point. I don't grow. I don't change. I don't become. I am. I am. God does not grow or change or learn. God is not a man that he should change his mind. Look, I learn something new every day. Every day. I learn some days things I already learned in past days but forgot. Has that happened to any of you? I actually was telling the baptism class this morning that they need to read their Bible regularly and sit under the preach word regularly just not only because they'll grow in their understanding, but because they'll start to lose things they already started to understand. That I study the Bible every day. I even read passages that I've preached before, and as I'm reading it, I'm going, I don't understand this passage. So I look up my own sermon, and I read it, and I go, wow, I didn't know I knew all this. That's what it means to be a human. But all that is or ever will be, God knows with one single act of his divine mind, and he doesn't forget a thing. Thus God's promise is gracious, eternal, wise, and immutable. This leads to the last aspect of the nature of God's promise. His promise is true. So there are five aspects of the nature of his promise. Last one is it's true. Look at verse 18 of chapter 6 again. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. See, when God speaks, 
it's impossible for him to lie. He is the truth. It isn't that just God tells us the truth. It is that God is the truth. What God says is true because it's God who said it. We have to stop and consider that. Whatever God says is true precisely because it's God who said it. He is the truth. He's the source of all truth. Therefore, any promise he makes is true. You and I do not make God's promises true, nor do we make them false. God's promise does not become true or more true, nor does it cease being true or become false because of us. God's promise is eternally and immutably, unchangeably true. Now here's the difficulty for us in all this. We are creatures, and he's the creator. We cannot wrap our minds around him. Not only can we not wrap our minds around him, we cannot even wrap our minds around his acts toward us. It's all too much for us to comprehend. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. The creature cannot comprehend the creator. The gracious, eternal, immutable wisdom of God in creating and providing and redeeming us in Christ is not something we can even comprehend. We can't even, listen, we can't even comprehend the effects of God's wisdom. What do I mean by the effects of his wisdom? God and his wisdom created. God and his wisdom governs or provides. God and his wisdom redeems. We can't even wrap our minds fully around the effects of God's wisdom, the things that are created and happen in history. Can you wrap your mind around all the creation? Nope. Can you wrap your mind around the grace of God in Christ? Nope. So we can't even wrap our minds around the effects of God's wisdom, let alone trying to comprehend his wisdom in itself. God's wisdom is revealed first in his promise in Genesis 3.15, and then it's progressively unfolded to us until it meets its ultimate end in Christ. Remember Genesis 3.15, God promises, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and her, the woman. Between your seed and her seed, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. We have that promise of God first given in Genesis 3.15, and then progressively unfolded to us, Genesis 12 to Abraham, Genesis 15 with Abraham, Genesis 17 with Abraham, Genesis 22 with Abraham. In other words, God is making his point really clear to Abraham. And then if you follow through Genesis 49, the tribe of Judah, 2 Samuel 7, and the house of David, and we see this progressively unfolded throughout the Old Testament until the Christ comes, the ultimate end of all those promises. God's saving purpose and every effect of God's saving purpose is fully made known in Christ. Thus, Paul can say, all the treasures of the wisdom of God are hidden in Christ. And yet we're still out of our depth, aren't we? Stop and try to consider Christ and try to wrap your mind around the God-man. You can't do it. We can't even fathom how loving and gracious a gift Christ is to us for the eternally begotten Son of God to take on humanity, for the creator to become the creature, for the lawgiver to place himself under the law, for the one who is life himself to taste death for us, for the one who is holy and blessed to become sin and the curse for us. We can't even wrap our minds around that grace. Too much for the creature to comprehend. Even the angels, you know that? Bow down before the effects of God's salvific wisdom in Christ. And they long to look into it. Told that by Peter. Because even the angels are just brought to this point of, we don't know what to say except just to long to look into it. Just to adore. 
You see it at the incarnation, don't you? This baby is born, and the angels have nothing left to say, if you will, except to sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. So how does Paul teach us to respond to this kind of wisdom? Not through explanation that leads to comprehension, but through proclamation that leads to adoration. In other words, we don't respond to the effects of God's purpose in saving us. We don't respond to that with analytical explanation, but with faith and worship. After 11 chapters of proclaiming God's gracious and wise plan of salvation in Christ, here's how Paul ends. Listen to how he ends. 11 chapters He's just been laying out God's saving purpose for us and the way it's played out in history in Christ for us. He's just been laying it out for 11 chapters in Romans. He doesn't end with saying, now let me sit down and explain God's grace to you in detail so that you can wrap your mind fully around it. Here's how he ends. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So Sovereign Grace, as we've been going through this section of Hebrews 5, 11 through chapter 6, when we tell you that we want you to study your Bibles and listen, I don't want you to misunderstand what we're saying. We do not listen to God to comprehend him, but to trust and adore him. We see the bottomless and limitless ocean of God's grace in Christ, and we're just moved to awe. We know we can't chart its seas, and we know we can't fathom its depths. Rather, we're just left in adoration. We're silenced by it all. And even when we can give voice to it, you know where we have to go? We have to go where all the saints in history have gone. We have to go to song, for poetic expression is all that we have left, because we have no ability to precisely explain it. That's been exhausted, so we just turn to poetry, and we sing. Like Adam, after waiting for Eve, waiting for the one who is his complement. And he waits, and God almost plays it out like a drama in front of him, doesn't he? He waits, and God creates the animals. Not good for the man to be alone. Now I'm going to create the animals. No, no, it doesn't quite fit. Then he gives him the woman, and Adam sees her, and he breaks out into poetry. He sees her, and he's like, what a good gift. At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she is, you guys aren't going to like this, for she's manlike. That's what it says in the Hebrew. We don't mean it in the kind of weird way our culture means today. She's like me. She's one of me. She's my compliment. He just goes to poetry. And what I'm driving at is whenever we come to these points in which we see God's goodness and grace played out for us, there's nothing left to do but either sit there in stunned silence or just go to some kind of poetic expression and sing. But there's another even greater problem for us than the fact that we're creatures. We're creatures who therefore cannot comprehend the gracious, eternal, wise, immutable, truthful purpose of God for us in Christ. But there's something even greater for us than the fact that we're creatures, and that's that we're sinful and fallen creatures. So what we do know is corrupted by our sinful minds. And more poignant to my sermon today, our sinful hearts and minds have a difficult time. Here's what I want you to understand. Our sinful hearts and minds have a difficult time believing God's promise in Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to help us with. He knows we struggle with the sin of unbelief. He knows we struggle with it. And he wants to show us how God helps us with that. You know that you can believe and struggle with unbelief. Did you know that? There's actually a prayer that way, directly given to the Lord in the Gospels, isn't there? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. One of the most honest prayers you can utter. 
We struggle with the sin of unbelief. The author to Hebrews knows that, and he wants to help us with that. And that leads to our second point, the confirmation of God's promise. The nature of God's promise is that it is gracious and eternal and wise and immutable and true. But we still struggle to believe it. And so he confirms it. He confirms it. The confirmation of God's promise. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So why did God guarantee his promise with an oath? God made a promise to Abraham. He made it clear in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. So why does he then confirm it or guarantee it with an oath? Was God's promise somewhat shaky apart from the oath? God had made a promise to Abraham, then years later, God reconfirmed that promise with an oath. Why? See, was God thinking about the promise for a while, sort of deliberating over it, wondering whether to keep it, and then he decided, okay, I'm really committed to this. I'll confirm it with an oath. Is God like a man who constantly feels the need to rededicate himself because he's not confident he really meant it the first time? Absolutely not. God gave this oath for whose sake? For our sake. What does it say? So when God desired to do what? show more convincingly to us. He was showing more convincingly to us so that we, verse 18, so that we might have strong encouragement. He did it for us. Think of this. God knows our weakness. He gave Abraham the oath, not because his promise was uncertain, but because Abraham's faith was shaky. Abraham struggled with unbelief. And he gives the promise and the oath because we struggle with unbelief. God knows our weakness. Though we had made a promise, though that promise revealed his immutable purpose, we still waver in our trust for him. That's due to our sin and unbelief. Yet he loves us and condescends yet again to make an oath. See, listen, in our rebellion, God condescended to us. And what was the first word God spoke in the face of our rebellion? Have you ever stopped to consider that? The first word, Adam and Eve rebel against God. What's the first word God speaks in the face of their rebellion? Our rebellion. Grace. The first word he speaks is a curse on the serpent that ends with the seed of the woman coming to crush his head and save us. God then narrowed that promise with Abraham, promising he would bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's seed. Yet Abraham had many circumstances, not the least of which being a barren wife. It's hard to get a seed from a barren wife, which caused Abraham to struggle with believing God would keep his promise. Even as God miraculously worked toward that promise being fulfilled, opening Sarah's womb, there was more left yet undone. There was more still to come. And how did God deal with Abraham as Abraham patiently waited and struggled to believe? He dealt with him graciously. He made an oath, adding it to his already sure promise. His promise was sufficient as he is truth in itself eternal, immutable, all-wise. Yet for our sake, he confirmed his promise with an oath. See, we struggle to really believe that God's promises are received by faith alone, don't we? Struggle to really believe that. We don't just struggle to believe that they're received by faith alone. We struggle to believe they're made to us at all. It's all too gracious. It's all too good. There must be some trap that has been set. There must be something left for me to do. John Owen, Puritan commentator, talks about it this way. He says that we all tend to 
be okay to stand on the ground of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but we often stand on that ground like there's some kind of mine underneath just waiting to go off. There must be something I'm lacking that needs to be added. See, we struggle to believe that God could be that gracious. Unbelief is our fundamental problem. What does unbelief do? Unbelief calls God a liar, but it's impossible for God to lie. Satan called God a liar, didn't he? Surely you won't die. And Adam and Eve believed him, thus they called God a liar with him. You wonder what's so bad about eating a piece of fruit. You want to know what's so bad about it? In taking the piece of fruit, they were calling God a liar. We don't believe God's promises. He's a liar. When God told Israel to enter the promised land, they said they could not because there were giants who lived there. And what they meant was, we don't believe God's promises. God's a liar. Their problem was unbelief. Their problem was unbelief. That's what we say when we look upon the gospel work of Christ on the cross and think it's not sufficient. Christ's blood being spilled was not enough. Christ's life given for me was insufficient. I must add to it in some way. There must be something more that I do. Receiving it by faith, that's all too gracious. There must be something more. And in doing so, we call God a liar. We say Christ's death was not sufficient, and we say God's word is not true. Whether it was the Judaizers in Galatia saying you must also be circumcised, or it's the medieval Roman Catholic Church saying you must add sacraments and your grace-empowered good works, or whether it's you saying you must add your own deep, heartfelt sincerity and efforts. It's not really true until I have unshakable, never-doubting belief. All of these additions to grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, call God a liar. And the apostles at pains to say God is not a liar. That's impossible. And he's taking great efforts, more than is necessary, because he is concerned for your continuing in faith. He knows you're weak. Now think about this. God knows you're weak, and he knows you're apt to call him a liar. So he gives an oath to secure your faith, not to secure his promise. And ultimately, he secures your faith in the fulfillment of that promise and oath in Christ, who is the ultimate confirmation of it. Look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now think about this. Think of the analogy. Our anchor, when you think about an anchor, we have a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. When you think about an anchor, you think about a, a ship in a harbor or a ship out to sea, and it anchors itself and it drops the anchor down into the ocean and secures itself against the floor of the ocean to hold the ship in place. And you're hopeful that that anchor is sure and steadfast, that it will hold. And he's saying, this is an anchor that is sure and steadfast. It is an anchor that will hold. It is an anchor that is immovable. It holds you in place, surely, steadfastly. But the anchor doesn't go down into the sea. It's an anchor that goes up into heaven. Did you catch that? Where is your soul anchored? Heaven. You're tethered to Christ in heaven. We are anchored in the eternal promise and oath of the Father for his people. We are anchored in the redemptive fulfillment of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. We are anchored in the gracious assistance of the Holy Spirit who has united us to Christ through faith. So our anchor is in heaven, behind the veil where Christ is seated. 
He's gone there to heaven as our forerunner and as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which we'll get into more in chapter 7. Listen, heaven would not be safe for you. Heaven would not be safe for me if Christ had not entered before us and had he not been our priest forever. In the Old Testament, the priest would enter behind the veil once a year in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle of the temple. But his intercession there was temporary and necessarily repeated. Further, he never brought the people of Israel behind the veil with him. But Jesus went behind the veil or the curtain as our eternal priest, and he resides there. He doesn't have to come out and go back in over and over and over again. He's entered in. And he's not only entered in, He's entered in as our eternal priest who once for all atoned for our sins and he went behind the curtain as our forerunner bringing us with him behind the veil. So Christ is there at the right hand of the Father as our Redeemer and thus the anchor for our souls is tethered to him in heaven. So not only is heaven safe for us now, but heaven is ours because Christ resides. It's a sure and steadfast anchor. That means your soul, being tethered to Christ through faith and by the Spirit, is tethered to heaven. And that's sure and steadfast. Whatever else is going on in your life, whatever storms and struggles, your great hope is that your soul is anchored with Christ in heaven. But I have one last question. For whom is all of this true? And that leads to the last point, the object of God's promise. So the nature of God's promise It is gracious and eternal and wise and immutable and true. The confirmation of God's promise. He made the promise for us. He confirmed the promise for us because he knew we were weak in faith. And he fulfilled the promise in Christ for us so that we're tied to him. But who's us? Who are those of us to whom the promise comes? Who are the recipients of God's promise? Who are the objects of it? Look again at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Who are the heirs of the promise? Look what he goes on to say in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Who is we who have fled for refuge? Who are the heirs of the promise? Well, they're the heirs of the promise given to Abraham, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham. They're the heirs of the promise made to Abraham. So who are the heirs of the promise made to Abraham? Well, Abraham and his offspring, or his seed. Who's that? Look at Galatians chapter 3. Hold your hand in Hebrews 6. Keep your hand there and look at Galatians chapter 3. Who is Abraham and his seed? Look at verse 16. Galatians 3 and verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham... And to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. God's promise and oath are given to Abraham and his offspring, and his offspring is the Christ. God graciously bestowed his promise and oath upon Abraham and his offspring. Abraham did not receive the promise because of something he did, but because God is gracious. And God gave that promise to Abraham and his offspring graciously. Look at verse 18 of Galatians 3. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise so that it's gracious, Paul tells us in Romans 4. Now I want you to notice something that was said in Hebrews, but keep your hand in Galatians 3. So keep your hand there in Galatians 3 and look back at Hebrews. Chapter 6 and verse 17, we're just going to flip back and forth real quickly. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs 
of his promise. Notice that, of the promise. The heirs, plural. The heirs, plural. Look at verse 18. We, middle of verse 18. We, plural, speaking of us. Who's the us? The people to whom the apostle's writing and the apostle himself. We, who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement. I don't know if you caught that. The gracious promise and oath God gave to Abraham and to his offspring, who is the Christ, the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring, who is the Christ, is ours. Not only the Hebrew Christians here, but ours. Why? How could it be ours? Isn't he writing to Hebrew Christians? Yes, primarily. Well, then isn't it their promise and their oath because they're Abraham's physical offspring? No. Well, who's the heir of Abraham's promises then? The sons of Abraham. Well, that's right, but isn't that his physical offspring? No. Well, then who is it? Who are the sons of Abraham if it is not merely those who are his physical offspring? The answer is all those who are in Christ through faith. Look at Galatians 3 and verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Gentiles being non-Jews, by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now go down to verse 26 of chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So who are the heirs of the promise? All those who are in Christ. So God gave this promise to you and to me, and it's received through faith in Christ. So here's the question for you. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in him? Are you trusting in him? Have you recognized that you're a sinner and fled to him for refuge? Those of us fleeing to Christ for refuge in the storm of judgment for sin are the offspring of Abraham, the heirs of the promise. We look to Christ and we trust in him. That's why I began the sermon by saying, please do all that you can to persevere in the faith, to be obedient, to strive to enter that rest of heaven, but please do not fail to remember that the foundation of your assurance is God's grace alone, given to you by faith alone, in Christ alone. Please note that even after all these warnings in Hebrews 5 through 6, and this whole discussion about the evidences of true faith, particularly in chapter 6, 1 through 12, the apostle does not say, he does not say this, your family's Christian background is your assurance. Your baptism is your assurance. Your church membership is your assurance. Your good works, that's your assurance. Your deep sincerity is your assurance. Your constant faithfulness is your assurance. Your maturity and godliness is your assurance. Your altar call or that prayer you prayed or your service to the church, that all of those are assured and steadfast anchor for the soul. He doesn't say that. He says that God's gracious promise confirmed in Jesus is the sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. He does not say that, listen, after you've cleaned up your act, and really learned a lot of self-discipline so that you're finally worthy to come to him. Then Jesus is the sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. He says this is true of those, listen, who have fled for refuge to him. You hear that language? That's an interesting way to describe belief, isn't it? What's belief? Fleeing for refuge to Christ. When you're fleeing for refuge, you know that judgment is coming for you and deservedly so. You aren't fleeing for refuge because you have your act together and you've done much to merit God's favor. 
You're fleeing for refuge because you recognize that all you've earned is his fiery judgment. You're fleeing to him for refuge because you realize that he is the only one who can save you from himself. So are you trusting in Christ? Have you fled to him for refuge? If so, you have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Think of that, beloved. Have you fled to Christ for refuge? If so, you're anchored to him in heaven. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. It is safely moored till the storm will the storm withstand, for it is well secured by the Savior's hand. And the cables passed from his heart to mine can defy that blast through strength divine. It will firmly hold in the floods of death when the waters hold chill our last breath. On the rising tide it can never fail while our hopes abide within the veil. When our eyes behold through the gathering night the city of gold, our harbor bright, we shall anchor fast by the heavenly shore with the storms all past forevermore. Christ is the sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. May we look to him. Father, we are thankful for the grace you've shown us in your son that you eternally decreed to be kind to us, that you did so wisely, you did so immutably, truthfully. Father, we give thanks that you care for us enough to recognize that our unbelief is a deep sin that abides in our hearts, and that you, knowing that about us, in grace, confirmed your promise to Abraham with an oath, that you continued confirming that through the prophets of the Old Testament, and finally and fully in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that we have him to flee to for refuge, and that as we do, he is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, tethering us to heaven, so that heaven is ours. We pray that we would trust him and never ourselves, never our works, never our efforts, never our sincerity, never the strength of our faith, but the strength of our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.